0: Uh, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities, therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured his life, poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors.
1: Oh, have you ever wished that you could make a fresh start? Maybe there's some mistake that you've made in the past? Or something you just deeply regret as you look back, you just wish you could take it back or, or have it wiped off the record. Maybe you've done something and you're, you're stuck with the consequences and it's not fun. And if you think, if I could just have that thing wiped out, if I could just have a clean slate, a fresh start, that would be so amazing. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I certainly have. And for the past uh, few weeks, we've been looking at Isaiah 40 to 66, uh, which is addressed to God's people who were longing for a fresh start. They'd messed up big time. They'd rebelled against God, and it wasn't just like a a one-off mistake, oopsie-daisy. This was like over decades and centuries, ignoring God and rebelling against Him. And now they were stuck with the consequences of their actions, They were exiled in Babylon. They they were captive to the the oppressive Babylonian empire. Now, Babylon was the, the major regional power at the time. You can see it there in the map in green. And in 587 BC, their armies had marched down south, destroyed Jerusalem, ransacked the temple, and carried off God's people into exile. And you can just imagine, can't you, their deep regret as they're living in these, uh, you know, in these squalid conditions in a foreign land, longing for home. You can just imagine their regret, wishing they could do things differently, wishing they could have a clean slate, a fresh start. And as we look at Isaiah 52 to 53 today, we see that God does promise to give his people a fresh start, but it's not perhaps what you might at first, think. So, uh, have a look with me. Well, we had read out Isaiah 52 from verse 13, but we're actually going to um, start from 52 verse 1. Have a look what's going on. Check it out. Isaiah 52 verse 1. God says this to his people Awake, awake, Zion, clothe yourself with strength, put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city the uncircumcised and defiled, that's the, the foreign Babylonians who had come and uh, taken them out, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust, rise up, sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, daughter Zion, now a captive. Now notice that, being, that Jerusalem is being told to free herself from the chains on her neck, the, the clothes of exile, and to instead put on garments of splendor. God's telling them he's going to save them, to free them from captivity and bring them out of exile. You might be wondering, uh, who or what is is Zion mentioned there in verse 1 and verse 2? What's that talking about? Well, Zion is just another way of referring to Jerusalem. Uh, The reason for that is that Mount Zion is the name of the hill uh, on which the city of Jerusalem is built uh, here's a, a rendition of uh, the ancient city of Jerusalem. I tried to get a picture, but the drone technology they had back then wasn't very good, unfortunately. So quite pixelated, I thought, let's just go with this. Uh, so there's the city, and then up there is the temple, which is built on top of this hill. And that's Mount Zion. That's where the temple was built. And so Zion is just another way of referring to Jerusalem. As soon as you said that, they'd know, oh, that's exactly what you're talking about. It's a capital city of God's people. In the days of Isaiah. So, in Isaiah 52, verses 1 to 2, God's saying to his people that he's going to bring them back to their home, back to Jerusalem, back to Zion. Uh, And that's good news, isn't it? I mean, that would be a great thing to hear if you're an Israelite living in captivity. And have a look in your Bibles with me where this is expanded on in verse 7. Check it out. Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now, notice again that Zion and Jerusalem are being used interchangeably here. And and what's the good news that's being proclaimed to them? The good news is your God reigns, He's in charge, He's in control, He's on His throne. And he's coming to rescue you. Verse 9 says, Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. Back in Isaiah 40, a few weeks ago, uh, God promised to comfort his people. Comfort, comfort, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And now he's fulfilled that promise, he's comforted them. And so he's now calling his people to leave Babylon, leave their captivity and return home. Check out what he says to them in verses 11 to 12. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the articles of the Lord's house. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. God's telling his people they can leave Babylon. They don't need to be defiled by it any longer. And as they come, they're to carry with them the articles of the Lord's house. That's referring to the temple. You see, when the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BC, they'd ransacked the temple and they'd stolen the golden articles used for worshipping God. So all the like golden forks and spoons and platters and all these different implements that were used in the sacrificial system. Well, that was plunder. So the Babylonians had taken all those golden articles. But now God's saying, you can bring them back to where they belong. Come worship me in Jerusalem. And God says, you're not going to leave in haste or go in. You're not going to be like fugitives trying to sneak out or run away with nothing but the clothes on your back. No, you're going to walk out triumphantly, protected by the God of Israel. And if you were with us last Sunday, we saw how that's possible. Because surely the Babylonians aren't going to let them walk out and just take all that gold back with them, are they? Well, no, the Babylonians aren't, but God sent Cyrus, king of Persia, to wipe them out. And one of the first things Cyrus did is said, Here, you guys can go back with a red carpet. Go rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so, now. On our map, where that red arrow had once represented invading armies, uh, marching from Babylon to attack, it now represents God's people triumphantly marching home, thankful, rejoicing, singing songs to the God who saved them, protected by the God of Israel. They were coming home. A fresh start, a clean slate. How amazing is that? But here's the thing, what if a fresh start is not as good as it's cracked up to be? What if a clean slate isn't as good as we might be tempted to think? Because here's a scary thought, but think about this for a moment, Uh, even in our own lives, maybe you've done stuff in the past you wish you could be wiped away. But even if you got that, even if you got a clean slate, what's to stop you from messing it up all over again? Even if you've got a fresh start, what's to stop you from making the same mistakes and more bad judgments in the future? You know, as I look at my own life, I've made, done a lot of stuff that I regret. I've messed up in a lot of ways. And now looking back, well, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. So if I could get in a time machine, I'd clearly be able to dodge that. Okay, not make that, that dumb mistake. But what's going to stop me in five years or five months, or let's be realistic, within the next five days... From making more dumb mistakes. From being selfish and stupid and hurting the people I love. That's a problem. Even if God gives me a clean slate, I'm just going to make it messy again very quickly. And this is Israel's problem too. Yes, they'd been comforted and brought out of exile and back to Jerusalem, but, but what's going to stop them from just starting all over again, repeating that cycle of rebellion and, me- and messing up and, and needing God's discipline all over again? It's not enough to simply fix the symptom, exile in Babylon, if the underlying issue is still there. Uh, We've got a few med students and doctors in the room, so I'm no expert at this, but I think this is right. Uh, If you broke your arm really badly, like a compound fracture, like it, it really needs surgery and stuff, you're in a lot of pain. If you went to your doctor and said, hey doc, I'm in a lot of pain, and they said to you, oh pain... I've got just the thing for that. They give you some really strong pain meds and sent you home and said, you'll be right. I'm pretty sure that's bad doctoring. Is that right? (laughs) Bad doctoring. Yep. don't do that. They'd be crazy. It's not enough to fix the symptom and just mask it up, is it? You have to actually fix the underlying cause. And that's true for Israel too. They've been exiled to Babylon, yes, but that was because of their sin, so, so, God fixed that symptom. He brought them home, but the underlying issue of sin in their hearts was still there. What they needed was a deeper solution, something to fix the problem of sin in their hearts. Otherwise, that whole story of sin and rebellion and judgment was just going to keep repeating itself all over again. A couple of weeks ago, uh, at UWA's O'Day, Uni Church had a stall on campus. Uh, so there's a bunch of people there. You can see we've got this little uh, conversation board in there. Let's zoom in on it so you can see it. Uh, this is with the final results after the day. Uh, we were surveying students on what they're confident about in 2023. So people could come up and add their vote, taking one of the markers and, and marking their vote in the box of what they're confident about. Uh, so a bunch of people said that, for example, they are confident that doing what I love... Uh, Is all that matters. Uh, That wasn't too popular, but a a bunch of people uh, put votes there. A number of people said uh, they are confident that you can't be confident about anything. Uh, Now, you might ask, how could they be confident of that? Well, I'm not sure they'd be able to give you a confident answer to that, to be honest. Uh, But let's let that one go through the keeper for now. Um, I don't know if they're going to be studying philosophy later on. Maybe a few things will get sorted out. Uh, Climate change is our most uh, popular response. Can you have it? Based on just a vibe, having a look, what was the second most popular response? God is real is a close third, but second is there is something deeply wrong with the world. People are confident that there's something deeply wrong with the world. Now, that led to some great conversations You know, because while many people recognize there's something wrong in our world, people have very different theories on what that is. Maybe it's capitalism. Maybe it's socialism. Maybe it's patriarchy. Those on the right wing of the political divide tend to blame those on the left. Those on the left wing of the political divide tend to blame those on the right. But the Bible guards us against just these but uh, political uh, partisan thinking that misses the deeper issue. The Bible tells us that actually both of those are missing the mark. Neither of them go deep enough. The Bible tells us that our problem in our world is not out there; it's in here. The problem in our world is not those people who disagree with me on these political or other issues. The problem is not those people. The problem is me. It's each one of us. It's in our hearts. The problem is sin. Now often when we hear that word sin, we we think of the bad things I do. You know, so stealing is sin and lying is sin or the injustice that we see in the the world around us. That's sin. And on one level, those are sins. But on another level, they're only outward manifestations of a far deeper issue. And that deeper issue, that's what sin is. Sin is not just the bad things I do, it's the the power that's at work in my heart that makes me want to do those bad things. Sin is a disposition to ignore God and rebel against Him. Sin is a waywardness in our hearts that inclines us to put ourselves before God and others. Sin is an inclination, a leaning in our hearts to, to curve in on themselves, to put ourselves at the center of the universe rather than God. To want to ignore him. To want to do things our own way. So uh, it's not just that I happen to do bad things. It's actually that I've got something in me that makes me want to do bad things. That's why if we want to talk about you know things that we're, things that we're confident in, I am highly confident that I'm going to be selfish and sinful in the next week and the next year. I'm not at peace with that. I'm not okay with that. But I know it's going to happen. Why? Because I'm not just a person who happens to occasionally do some things that are suboptimal. I actually have something in my heart that is deeply selfish. All of us do, if we're honest. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And that is actually the root issue. That's that's what's deeply wrong in our world. Don't get me wrong, there are lots of things out there that are wrong in our world, but all of those are just symptoms of human beings ignoring God, wanting to do things our own way, and putting ourselves before him and others. That is the problem. Everything else is just the symptom. And because God is a good doctor, he's not just going to chuck us on some pain meds and send us home. God is going to deal with the root issue once and for all. He's going to give us a solution to our deepest problem. And that solution, according to Isaiah 52 into 53, is a suffering servant. Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this from Isaiah 52 verse 13. Check it out. Isaiah 52 verse 13. God says... See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. So notice here, they were introduced to God's servant. But who is this servant? Well, uh, you might be tempted to say, well, obviously it's Jesus. But if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've seen that actually originally from Isaiah 41 onwards, God's servant was Israel. Israel was God's chosen servant to overcome the curse of sin in this world with blessing, uh, to bring light and justice and blessing to all nations. That was promised through Abraham, right? Right? But as we saw two weeks ago, Israel failed in that mission. They rebelled against God and ignored him. That's why they were sent into exile. And that's where Jesus comes in, where Israel failed in their mission to be God's servant. Jesus succeeded. In Jesus, God steps into human history himself to perfectly fulfill the law And to bring his blessing to all nations, overcoming that curse of sin with blessing. That's what we saw two weeks ago. But in Isaiah 53, God is giving us much more detail about how his servant Jesus will accomplish this. He's giving us far more detail about how his servant Jesus will overcome the curse of sin. And it's not the kind of thing that you'd expect if you're thinking, how am I going to solve this problem? So let's have a look. And as we do, keep in mind, this prophecy from Isaiah was written down 700 years before Jesus was born. And yet it's remarkable how it points forward to him so clearly. Have a look in your Bibles with me from Isaiah 53 and verse 1. It says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And it's noteworthy that God didn't step into human history as you know, a superhero or like some kind of marvel character. Uh, Jesus didn't even step into history as a fully grown, strong man. But instead, how did he do it? He did it as a tender baby. Vulnerable and small. Growing up. We're told that this servant had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And that's true. Jesus wasn't some, you know, Hollywood actor with shiny white teeth. He wasn't some impressive Roman centurion or Caesar or high official or celebrity. Jesus was a lowly carpenter. He was a tradey. He was just an average bloke. And throughout his life, Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind. It's not just that he was average and unimpressive, like, if, if you were here in this room and Jesus, as a 21-year-old, was here, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have like a glowing halo over his head or something. He's just an average person. But even more than that, he's actually worse than that. He's despised. He's rejected. Like Jesus was hated by the religious and political elite. He had a small band of followers. He drew big crowds if he was giving them you know, food or miracles. But apart from that, people who actually followed him was a very small following, and even they turned their back on him and abandoned him when he was arrested and put on trial. People turned their face from him. Jesus suffered deeply in his trial and torture and execution. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And yes, Jesus suffered deeply, uh, especially in his death on the cross, but, but whose sin was he being punished for? Well, have a look in your Bibles with me from verses 4 to 6, which couldn't be any more clearer or emphatic. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and inflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That's what sin is. God, I want to do things my way. And yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus suffered not for his own sin, but for ours for mine and yours. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. If our deepest issue is sin in our hearts, then Jesus provides a solution by doing what? By taking that sin in himself. If our whole world is under the curse of sin, then then Jesus provides a solution by doing what? By taking that curse of sin and death in himself, bearing the full brunt and weight of that so that all who trust in Him can be forgiven. Not just so that we can have a a fresh start or a blank slate that we're going to then mess up again tomorrow, but so that our sin can be washed away once and for all. Not just to forgive your past sins, but your present and your future ones as well. So brothers and sisters, if you ever feel guilty, if you ever feel ashamed, you ever feel unworthy, racked with guilt and think, surely there's no way that God would put up with someone like me. Like, yeah, I get that he's forgiven me for that stuff in the past, but, but look how messy my life is now, like even this week. Surely God wouldn't put up with someone like me. Brothers and sisters, if you've ever felt that way, fix your eyes on Jesus who willingly gave himself to be pierced for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquities. He willingly did that to forgive you for your sins, past, present, and future. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who told us that he came not to be served by others as, some, you know, as a worldly prince or something. He came not to be served, but to, to serve, to be a servant, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is so much better than a fresh start. In Jesus, God's mercies are fresh every morning and every hour. So when you're feeling discouraged, fix your eyes on Jesus and know that God in his love has provided for you a lasting solution to your deepest need. Isaiah 53 is a rich and beautiful passage filled with such great comfort, both for God's people two and a half thousand years ago, as they were in Babylon preparing to come back home but wondering if this thing wasn't all just going to happen all over again. It provides great comfort for them and great comfort for God's people even today, doesn't it? And this passage points us forward to Jesus in so many ways. I mean, let's have a look at a few of these. Have, have a look in your Bibles with me at Isaiah 53, verse 7. Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says this. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This is predicting that Jesus would remain silent even before those who would accuse him and seek to put him to death. And look at how this is fulfilled seven hundred years later. This is Mark 14. It says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Now, now why would Jesus remain silent? I mean, if you've even read some of the gospels, you'll quickly get this impression. Jesus easily could have spoken up and defended himself. There were all kinds of times where people would try to trap Jesus in his words. And Jesus was just like, you know, a Houdini. He would like almost get out of every situation. He would know just what to do to like see into their false motives and know just what to say. And people would be stunned and left silent. They couldn't trap him, he would always turn the tables on them. Jesus so easily could have proved them wrong. Their case was so weak, they couldn't even agree with themselves. He could have easily proved them wrong, but he chose not to. Why? Because he didn't want to be freed. He was choosing to go and die for us, to save us in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Check out Isaiah 53 verses 8 and 9. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked... And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus being assigned a grave with the wicked was fulfilled when he was crucified alongside two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. What about that odd statement with being with the rich in his death? It's kind of confusing. Uh, And for a long time, even like rabbis and Jewish scholars, if they looked at this, they're like, is there like a transcription error here or something Wicked we get, but rich, that doesn't seem to make any sense. But it did make sense after Jesus died, and as Matthew 27 records, this is right after Jesus' death. What happened? Well, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb. Those were very expensive back then that he had cut out of the rock. Jesus was assigned a place with the rich in his death, in this tomb. You know, Isaiah 53 is so rich in the many ways it's fulfilled in Jesus, and we can't look at all of them, but there's one more crucial piece of the puzzle that we must see. Because Isaiah 53 says, testifies ahead of time, not only that this servant will suffer and die, but also that he'll be raised again. Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this in Isaiah 53 from verse 10. Have a look. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand." After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. So this tells us that Jesus is going to pour out his life unto death. And yet what's going to happen after his suffering? He will see the light of life. He won't just die, but he'll be raised again. Well, have a look. You see this as well in Isaiah 52, 13. This is the first verse from our reading. Check it out. Isaiah 52, 13, it says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be what? Raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Jesus is not only the suffering servant who died for us, but also the glorified servant who was raised for us. He not only solves our deep-seated problem of sin, but even conquers death itself. So have you ever wished that you could have a fresh start? Well, today we've seen that in Jesus, God gives us something far better. God's given us not just a clean slate that we're going to mess up all over again soon, but he's actually given us a deeper and lasting solution to our biggest problem. In Jesus' death and resurrection, God's given us not just a fix for our past, but forgiveness for our sins, past, present and future. So when you're feeling discouraged, fix your eyes on him who willingly came to give his life to serve you and know that God in his love has given you a perfect solution for your deepest need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your astonishing patience and mercy. Thank you that although we constantly struggle with sin and we so often ignore you and put ourselves before you, although we confess that you know, so often we turn our back on you. And we thank you that despite all that, you haven't turned your back on us. Thank you that in Jesus, you fulfilled these promises made 700 years before he was born. Thank you that through his death and resurrection, we can have confidence that you've forgiven us for our sins past, present, and future. So Father, when we're feeling discouraged, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen.